0: First and foremost, I just think that socialism, you know, is the answer in this moment and has been the answer because it's the only way to ensure that people get what they deserve and what they materially need to just uh, survive, you know. Uh, White people and elites have done everything in their power to try to withhold, um, you know, these things from us that we need, keep us begging, keep us, quote unquote, in our place. Um, but I really believe that once we're able to free ourselves from the burdens of navigating for-profit healthcare systems, having to pay majority of our income to rents and mortgages, and also just having to hustle for you know other basic necessities, we'll get closer to a future that's, I believe, bountiful in ways that are not material outside of the material realm. It will be beautiful.
1: That was Bianca Cunningham, campaign director at the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Bianca is also a co-founder of the Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. She joined my co-host Toussaint Lossier and myself on this episode of Black Work Talk. I've known Bianca for several years, and we invited Bianca on the show to get a perspective on the challenges facing the black left, as it build power in America. We had a rich conversation ranging from why black folks should look at socialism as a pathway to fighting structural racism to what the fight looks like on the ground in real time. I love the conversation, I think you will too. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Blackboard Talk, I'm glad to be here. And super glad to be here my co-host, Toussaint Lussier. What's up man, how you doing?
2: Hanging in there, man, how you doing?
1: Anything special happening?
2: I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in the world these days, but you know, uh I woke up this morning, I'm blessed, so I can't I can't really complain too much. Yeah,
1: yeah, things are things are kinda crazy though, man. It's like I was telling a friend of mine that I like, feel the whole Trump presidency, like, every time we thought we hit rock, rock bottom, we kept on falling. And now we have a damn near uh, maybe a world war breaking out in, in in Europe and Ukraine. Like, what the fuck is terrible? And and <laughs> The dude got nuclear weapons, man. <laughs> you know I, know, I have no faith he won't use them. Um, but but um, I haven't gone deep into it, so I don't want to try to have great pronouncements on, on, on Ukraine or anything. But in sifting through some of the announcements and the reports and so forth, I thought back to a slogan that we had back in good old days. It was uh, countries want independence, nations want liberation, people want revolution. And, and that was a slogan. It was kind of, you no know, incomplete. But I thought the outline is kind of important, though, because the notion that when I hear that slogan again, to me it says that it's important to defend a c- country's independence. And that's a, a very crucial common principle for international solidarity. At the same time, you have to understand that people want to be free of authoritarianism. This complicates the story a lot. What concerns me, this is me be kind of emoting now, man, no, no great pronouncements, is... What does it mean to really support the people of Ukraine? I mean, we talk a lot about the valiant fighting, you know, um, but, you know, I don't like heroic dead folk, you know. I like, I'm my heroic live folk. And so, so what does it mean to really support them? And um, I haven't gone through every little statement on the left, so I'm not trying to do any big critique of every group or whatever on the left, but I'm bothered by statements that talk about opposing Russian aggression and supporting the Ukraine people but imply that folks shouldn't send arms to li- let them live. That seems a bit abstract to be honest. Because in a day you have a real fight to, to, to go through and, and real bullets flying. And I, I'm uncomfortable saying that we want to send troops over there. You know, I am uncomfortable saying that. So I'm not saying, by the way, it's not a black work talk position, by the way, <laughs> okay? But, but I do think we got to be real about, about what we mean to support folk. And how far do you go? Um, So, those are my quick thoughts, Manson. I don't know if you have any reflections or thoughts on
2: it. No, I mean, I think one, when when it comes to the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, I think there's a lot to sift through. And um, there's a, you know, we could have a whole series of segments on it in a lot of different ways. I think um, a couple things that come top of mind, in addition to the slogan you mentioned, especially if we're talking about the black left, um, there's a, there's a even, I think, the, the kind of tradition that comes out of W.B. Du Bois that really focuses on the need to kind of emphasize the, the question of peace, right? I think one of the things that we've seen sort of starkest in this moment is how, for me as somebody who I think in some ways kind of cut my teeth amidst uh, both the, the sort of first and then, you know, saw things taking place but then really got involved uh, amidst the second uh, War in Iraq. Rock, the degree to which the saber-rattling that's taking place and kind of the the urge to sort of lean into military conflict feels very familiar, Um, and how little motivation there is, the emphasis there is on trying to find, um, like, kind of peaceful resolutions as opposed to simply what are ways, sort of in a way that speaks to sort of what you were saying about, like, you know, just... What does it mean to support just in terms of like providing arms or a kind of moral support as opposed to trying to find ways to um, to work out a resolution that brings that actually de-escalates the situation as opposed to further escalates it. Right. Is one thing. Obviously, I saw a lot of friends of mine on the timelines not really paying attention to what happened until they saw some of the the racism being faced by um, by either Afro-Ukrainians or black folks who were studying in Ukraine or living there when they were trying to to leave the country and what it looked like for them to try to uh, get out of the country and not just being denied the opportunity to leave, but being seen as illegal immigrants for trying to cross into Poland and what that meant about how the the way in which the media attention on this moment has been particularly heightened because the people who were victims are white and then also the ways in which... There's been so little attention on the circumstances facing non-white folks in Eastern Europe and other parts of the continent, you know, with multiple refugee crises, right? Whether you're talking about people who are fleeing across the Mediterranean, whether you're talking about Syrian refugees, all of the above. But it, it is, I think, a really it is a really stark situation, both in terms of questions of like how do folks Defend their national independence. How do we confront authoritarianism and really the power that oligarchs have, and how we don't even think about questions of oligarchs in our own country? And then also, how do we deal with like the real, very real problems of real right-wing politics that have been a, that have been rising up? And this question in terms of what folks talk about, in terms of the kind of emergence of of neo-Nazism in Ukraine and the ways in which, despite it sort of being used as a pretext for war it's a problem that directly speaks to problems we see in our own country and around, you know, the, the first world, um, when you not only have real right-wing ideologies being mobilized by those who are very well-established and in power um, and also how easy it is for young people, especially young men to be attracted to them when they, you know, they're out of work, they don't have very, they see very few opportunities under the kind of neoliberal regime that we find ourselves with.
1: Yeah, before we transition to, uh, to while we're here, our, our wonderful guest, a couple of last things. You are talking about kind of the, the um, dispersed treatment in terms of the Afro-Ukrainians and, and so forth. And it seems to me that people of color are almost permanently fighting a duality where on the one hand you're fighting the various manifest- manifestations of racism. You're also fighting for lack of a better term, broader democratic battles as well. And how do you kind of have that kind of, I keep saying, playing the piano of 10 fingers approach towards it, where it's important to fight for democracy and, and freedom, but it's important not to allow that general fight to ignore the fight against racism. And, and that kind of duality is a constant thing that, that we'll, we'll, we will never get away from. Um, and, and the last thing this is my pivot to, to Bianca is... Um, you know, the other frustrating thing is, while we talk a lot about the right position, we don't have the power to implement it. By the way, and, and and so my thing is always: you understand the world better by engaging the world, and we don't have the power to understand the nuances because we don't. To, therefore, we can't get a sense of what to actually do, and and so that's a a blunt segue <laughs> into my guest, um, because this is the segment on the Black Left, and we are talking about the question of the Black Left. And the power of the Black left. And, and so, Bianca, I know you may have all the answers, um, but seriously, I, I wanna welcome Bianca Cunningham to our show. Bianca, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Hey, y'all.
1: I met Bianca, maybe two plus years ago. I think it was at the, f- the first Black expo that the National Black Workers Center had in Baltimore. And you were mainly a little table for labor notes. Oh, who are you? Oh, hey, you seem kind of friendly. And intelligent, damn, go on, does that sound good? But seriously, um, it's been great to know you. At the time, you were working as a staff of labor notes. And and, and now I understand you transitioned to a new job at the what, Action Center for Racing the Economy. Um, ACRE, I guess, is maybe may not be the proper way to acronym or not, but you're there now. Um, but also, you're a member of DSA. And you're a co-founder of the afro Socialist and People of Color Caucus there. And I thought for this segment, it'd be really good to have you here because in kind of for a broader mass audience, when black folks today hear about socialism, oftentimes the lens is to do DSA, 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 and all the stuff that it brings with it, right? I will say all the stuff and leave it at that, right? <laughs> a- and so it would be important to actually hear from someone who's actually a real live dsa you know? And people can't, you can't see her. She does not have horns, <laughs> sitting down. I'm assuming there's no tail, by the way. She's a regular person, okay? But seriously, uh, and, you know, I'm joking with you, girl, and stuff, things would be on here. And and um, just real quick, any, any reflection of what, what Tucson and I was talking about u- Ukraine? Any thoughts, real briefly?
0: Yeah, just that, uh, you know, I don't have any of the answers or the right answers. I really appreciated the statement that Cuba um, came out with today that um not only spoke to you know the right and the sovereignty that you know Ukraine should have, but also the overreach of NATO into specific regions and how you know this has been something that they've been watching and has been escalating and could have been um you know avoided had the united states um, you know tried to take other action and so um, I'm appreciating all of the information. I'm also moved by, you know, the position of Afro-Ukrainians and Black and Brown folks um, who are dealing with, you know, like you said, the duality. And even in a time of war, what I've heard on my timeline echoed is even in a time of war, people are racist. And I'm, yeah, so like we have to like really sit in that as Black people who are always wanting to, you know, be in solidarity and believe that people, you know, don't really feel like that. You know, it's just it's just a front for something else. It's like we need to really sit with like this hate. And how deep it is, and, and, and the ways that it manifests itself um, in our lives.
1: Gavin, yeah, you're talking, Bianca. What I thought about, it, and it kind of is, is why I want you on the show also, and why we have the second on the Black Left, is what happens, I think, sometimes because of the, the persistent racism. So y'all being bombed to death, you still don't like us, what the fuck is going on, sort of thing, you know? Oftentimes, Black folks turn away from alternatives that are multiracial alternatives that talk about transforming in deep ways broader political economies. And so I think an important element of trying to embrace the dualities is talking about a vision of the future that both fights racism that we're f- facing, but it sees a, a better world, including a real anti racist. So I, I, I want to kind of just, pick your brain, see what's going on, and, and um, got a broad question. You know, last, got 10 years ago, Trevor Martin was killed, was murdered, you know, and that kind of jumped off the whole Black Lives Matter stuff, right? And, and this is like two years out from Joy Floyd being, being murdered and kind of a massive sort of racial reckoning and people talking about fighting structural racism. Why do you see the path to really fighting structural racism and really freeing black folks include a path for socialism
0: that's a huge question steve <laughs> <laughs> no for sure
1: you, you have 10 seconds to, you have 10 don't <laughs> 10 seconds we keep moving on okay but no. seriously that's an important question though okay it is so let's chop it up and you want to you chop it up okay
0: I mean, so first and foremost, I just think that socialism, you know, is the answer in this moment and has been the answer because it's the only way to ensure that people get what they deserve and what they materially need to just uh, survive. You know, uh, white people and elites have done everything in their power to try to withhold, um, you know, these things from us that we need, keep us begging, keep us, quote unquote, in our place. Um, but I really believe that once we're able to free ourselves from the burdens of navigating for-profit healthcare systems, having to pay majority of our income to rents and mortgages, and also just having to hustle for, you know, other basic necessities, we'll get closer to a future that's, I believe, bountiful in ways that are not material outside of the material realm. It will be beautiful. Um, but as far as, uh, st- like concrete things for structural racism right now, na- racism right now, I mean, I was also one of those people outside in the uprising. We occupied our city hall um, in New York City to defund the police by three billion dollars, and what it took to do that was uh, a collective of Black organizers and activists coming together to kind of call truce um, on all our organizational BS, right? And, and and say that we we felt like this was an important moment for us to hold space. Um but what we were confronted with was, you know, an occupation full of thousands of people, lots of unhoused people, lots of people who needed services. We were providing, you know, meals and Wi-Fi and 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 clothes and you know all of these things. It was a huge mutual aid project that was also right across the street from the tombs. Um where, you know the police uh, precinct. And I just found that, like, one of the things, like, the way that we were talking about policing as only a racial um, issue. We wanted to really separate the question and really talk about like what does safety mean for people. And so when you talk about structural uh, racism or structural issues, like yes, we wanted to defund the police, but then we also quickly realized that we needed fully funded services. We needed spiritual heal- people, workers, healers <laughs> to be on our side and in the space to help us, right? Um, because this is like so much, a, like as much of it is a political shift. It's also a cultural shift of like how we see each other. What do we consider as safety you know and my and me myself i was challenged in so many ways of like having to deal with outbursts of quote unquote violence and 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 people really feeling unsafe in the space and really trying to transition to like how do we do that in a place where we're talking about being autonomous from police presence, right? Like how do we keep each other safe? And it really came down to like these simple things that happen to work, like not talking at each other, but talking to one another. I, I remember one um specific example of somebody who, you know, pulled out a pretty large knife on a crowd. And I was scared, and we were thinking we were going to have to shut the, the the occupation down because we couldn't. We didn't feel like we could keep people safe. But what it took was a bunch of comrades who were brave and willing to look this person in the eye and show them that we're not scared. Ask them their name, and I think the next day when I came for a shift, uh, this person was serving food in the mutual aid line. People were calling them by their name, and they had become, in, in a in a sense, a functional member of our occupation, our community because we didn't lead with fear, right? Um, and so that brings me to like, what's the structural thing? I feel like, like, we have to figure out a way to confront violence differently. And like, in New York City specifically, you know, like I said, we've transitioned to this question of like, what is safety with our communities? And also really trying to like, uplift and fund organizations that are doing violence interruption um, in our communities and trying to really build that up and make that, be able to point to that as um, a solution, one solution, right? And in, in addition to fully funded services and defunding the police.
1: You said, a lot, I mean, I asked you a big question. You gave me a big <laughs> answer. So you, you get what you asked for, right? And, and, but I thought of a couple of things you are talking, Bianca. Um, let me say one, you can respond, then the other one, I will not get all together. You're saying how folk kind of put down their beefs in order to deal with the the issue at hand. Is that sustained? Or do you go back to your corners when, when the issues went down?
0: It's sustained, I would say, in the city. And it's something that's really important, particularly because you know, we're going to talk about Afro-socialists. We're going to talk about, you know, the role of the uh, black and brown radicals or leftists in the in the city, but we really didn't have an organized presence before this. And so uh, we were so limited in what we could respond to because we were all siloed in our organizations who were probably predominantly white-led, right? And not feeling like we, had, we could find like our in or our voice. Um, and so what you've seen is the sustaining like of those relationships because we've come together to realize that like nobody else is going to do this like this is it's only it's on us right and like that's how we came together in the very first place is like the the protests had kind of stopped and the activity had stopped and we were saying well wait a minute we still have this budget fight coming up we can't afford for people to stop. So we've got to do something about it. We can't be waiting for other people to do anything. And I think it's, it's really like transition itself and really nicely because now we have this black Republican mayor, um, who's talking about being tough on crime. You know, he's, he's a police officer and the bones or the structure of what we were building during the uprising is the same kind of movement that can challenge him and stand up as black folks within the city to say, Hey, we're not on the same type of time. And we understand that black folks voted for him, but we got something else to say, you know. And so it's really been useful because had we not done that, I don't think that we would be in a position to challenge Mayor Adams in the way um, that we are right now.
2: Wait, I just want to clarify because I want to make sure people don't get confused. So one, you're talking about. The occupation city hall from July twenty twenty right during the George Floyd protests the uprisings and and the way in which some of those relationships have been sustained and then two um, did you mean you said black Republican mayor
0: he's a he was a former Republican and he has he's Republican former, ideas yes he is you can look it up he did, was registered as a Republican until just recently.
2: Okay. We call okay. him a
0: Republican because. Okay, I
2: just I just want to make sure. I just want to make <laughs> sure there's no confusion. Nobody sends us emails like, "Hey, there was a was a there was a editing error or something like that." And it's also because I think people outside of New York City might not have a good idea in terms of where Eric Adams stands in terms of just the landscape of the city's politics, right? And might just see clips of him, but don't have. A sense of that backstory in terms of his political history, and um, even though he was able to win the election, that this is actually some of the that that it's it's no fluke that they might see him on you know the news at night talking about we need to spend more money on the police or we need to rush kids back into school without any kind of uh, proper pandemic safety or things of that nature. We need to cut social services, right? That that those kind of policies are actually illustrative of kind of his track record in many ways
1: facts but i would raise the question that his um partisan party affiliation is irrelevant because we use it sometimes as as a pejorative you have so you have different degrees of 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 stuff right so you're a, a, you're a democrat okay you're in one box but damn you're a republican you way off to, to whatever right uh, but the real world, I think, is, is beyond those things is that black folk didn't vote for him. And, and, the, and the question, I think, is not so much the, the label, not all black, some black folk did, obviously, is not so much the label, but as you were talking the content of his politics, but also the question of the content of the relationships that allowed him to get black working class support. And so that's, that's my little injection that, 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 that um, you know, we can call them a Republican, X or current or whatever else or whatever else. But most important is the policies. But I think also more important than the policies is that they stick because of power, and the power comes from relationships. And we need to think always thinking those those issues. I think in in the conversation, um, you're know, trying to defend Eric Adams. I don't care if he lets Kyrie play or not. You know those sort of things. You know, <laughs> um, but but um, it, it's it's important. I think to to make sure we don't. Not not the three of us, but the larger population that we we go beyond the the the, the electoral labels um, and make sure we don't also talk about content as well.
0: Sometimes. I appreciate that. I think in the context of like a place like New York, that's so progressive and that almost Republicans don't even exist. Like it means something that he's registered as a Republican. We certainly have had like independent Democratic caucus where Democrats are caucusing with Republicans on a statewide level. But I think it's pretty. Uh, it says something to me <laughs> that you would want to register with the Republican Party in a progressive city like New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Can, can I ask, uh, just building off that, what does it mean to you, to, to to the point that Stephen raised, what does it mean to you that he did get a lot of support from, from black voters? Like, I know this is taking us a little bit away from the socialism question, but I haven't, let me just say, I have an easy understanding of the way in which him having those kind of um, Ah, uh, policy positions is not too is not wholly unreflective of real strains of kind of like conservative and kind of neoliberal politics that do that have become popular amongst black folks and kind of put some of the work that we're gonna talk about in, you know, makes makes it an uphill climb. And how do you how do you explain his ability, as progressive a city as New York City is, um to, to, to win, you know, to win the mayor's office, right? Like what do you what do you um what do you attribute that to?
0: He's really aggressive on places like Clubhouse and TikTok, but also um I feel like, you know, his programs and, and thoughts around like uh plans for um STEM programs in blacks, in schools and black communities, for instance, are really popular. He wants to, you know, he, he instituted, like, the things sound good. He instituted vegan Fridays, which has been a disaster in real time. But, you know, people, you know, like the sound of those things. And also, I feel like he is, you know, somebody who black people can't, can, like, who resonates with black folks? Like, his, he's old school, you know, big, charismatic um, person, kind of says what he means. I think, you know, to the point of, like, his uh, political affiliations, I think people kind of like that he kind of is, like, a wild card. Um, and the truth is, is that we just didn't have, like, a really strong candidate pool. We're all heartbroken that we went from, like, feeling like we were so close um, to then electing a cop, for sure. And we realized that that's a huge failure. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, yeah it is it is that and, and the candidate pool was weak and it took just it just took too long for some people and he was very sure of himself the whole entire time and sure of his message the whole entire time
1: I remember when I was um, in, I spent 27 years in Houston, Texas and um, when Lee Brown became mayor in Houston he was, he was a the former cop uh, police chief and I'm saying there's no way black folks gonna vote for a cop and I was wrong and yeah. so the whole notion of, of, of um, taking our politics, but also infusing it with the real world analysis is super important to do. Mm-hmm. I want to say a couple things things to move on to another question. You know, Toussaint, you were saying, well, this gets away from the socialist question. I think it doesn't in that many ways. Because the problem, I think, is oftentimes people hear about socialism and they think abstractions. Or they think the Soviet Union. Or they think China. Or they think Cuba. And they don't think about how you apply certain values and principles to day-to-day lives. And I think that the more we can have what I'll call a holistic conversation, um, where we talk about transforming people's lives, as you mentioned, Bianca, uh, on a very day-to-day level, along with the kind of the intermediate stuff of trying to get policies that improve people's lives, and the longer-term stuff, you can have a richer, better conversation and, and I think more progressive politics as well. So I think thing it's kind of germane in some ways. The people use the phrase sometimes, sewer socialism, right? And that's kind of the idea that back in the day we had these socialist mayors in the Midwest and parts of the country. They cared about making sure sewers are there. They were, they were working, those sort of things. And oftentimes what you found is that the people who were socialists cared about folk more than other folk. And they, t- they took care of their daily needs as well. But the other question, by the way, on your whole Occupy story, I had asked, I'm glad I didn't ask them together. I would have lost, lost <laughs> track of it. Would you mention how as people asked that person with the knife his name, it began to de- deescalate the situation? And we came out the next day, all of a sudden, people were working together and kind of in harmony. And I wonder, I have a couple of questions. Um, the broad question, how do you scale that up? And and the, the more particular question that involves the scale-up question, I'm assuming if you kind of looked at the nature of the people in Occupy, most folk were progressive or left um, compared to the larger community itself. And it means that when we talk about kind of the, the what's in the air, that allows you to have certain conversations is kind of a strong current of left stuff up in the air. Well, if we go to most communities, you don't have the same sort of kind of influence of left thought that can allow folks to chill, and a lot of people have to chill given certain things. So I want to raise the question of scalability because um, the idea of, of having um, better relationships and community being the core of safety, it makes, makes a lot of sense. But I wonder how you actually do that in a, in a situation where we don't have the same sort of, I'll call it, both dominance of left values, and dominance may be a bit stronger, too strong of a term, by the way. Also, you don't have have a, a smaller scale. We can have human-sized sort of situations.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned that you know, uh, Afro-socialists uh, elected it's people who have gotten elected into like, state senate and assembly. People like Jabari Brisport. You know. Ha- is trying to take on this question, offering, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, I think he, last time I saw $50,000, um, trying to support organizations who are trying to scale up in their violence interruption. And so, yeah, supporting and building that infrastructure is key. It's one of the things, you know, and I didn't mention this, but like at one point, we you know, we felt, un, like I mentioned, we felt unsafe in the occupation. We had to call on some of those violence interrupter organizations to come into the space as black and brown men and kind of like you know, which 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 led us to this question of like, what is the role of brute force, or like, will we ever, you know, eliminate that? But but um, that's besides the point. I also want to just say that like, I don't know if I think that if I believe that left kind of tendencies have to be present in a community in order for us to be able to keep one another safe. I'll give an example of uh, a neighbor um, who lived upstairs from me um, suffered from mental health issues um, and. You know, I've lived in this apartment for about in this community for about eight years in this apartment. He's lived up up above me and with his family. Um, he's about the same age as me. And I just remember, you know, as I'm getting off of the train every day in my commute, sometimes he's having good days, sometimes he's having bad days, sometimes yeah. he's having fits, right? Yeah. Yelling yeah. and screaming and throwing things. That's but real. people know him. Mm -hmm. And the shop, the black and brown shop owners up, I I live off Utica Avenue, which is like a really busy uh, avenue in in Brooklyn and Crown Heights in that neighborhood. You know, people look out for him. We didn't feel, we never felt unsafe around him. People will, you know, knew his family, knew him and knew that he wouldn't hurt anyone. In 2018, um, a new uh, building went up across the street where there used to be an empty lot from us. um, And it's been... Uh, no surprise. Uh, mostly those apartments have been leased by, you know, white folks, right? Um, that are not from our community. And within three months of that, uh, he, so somebody called the police on him because they thought he had a gun. He was having one of his fits outside the barbershop. They thought he had a gun and our strategic research unit out of the 71st precinct came around and shot him in a drive-by shooting. Was okay. this the thing with the, where he was holding a pipe? He was holding a it, piece of a pipe. Oh, yes. That is, that. that is our neighbor. And, 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 oh. and, the, and, the, and the community was, we were devastated, but we were also outraged and stood in that place for, I would say, like days after. Like people just didn't even want to leave because they were so upset. But I'll just say that to say, and, and what everybody was saying is we knew him. He was okay. Every shop owner saying, well, he, sometimes, you know, elderly people saying, sometimes he went to the store for me. Sometimes, you know, people knew that he was okay. And so I don't think that I I don't characterize my neighborhood as being left leaning or radical in any, at any sense of the word. But I think that we do have the capacity to see and know one another and keep one another safe
1: yeah yeah yeah. you're right. I guess I, I didn't mean to apply that was a prerequisite to, to, to safety by the way. I, I was saying that my understanding my sense of the real world that existed in your example what you had was simply the dominance of left thought and 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 I guess what I didn't say, and you clarified is it, is the, the core thing there was since the, the, the community, and that sense of community can be built on many different things, not just some idea of some left politics so it's, I mean, thanks for the kind of injection, the correction and, and so forth.
2: So, just uh, I wanted to kind of build on that, and this kind of touches back on what we what you um, led off with around the whole um, the occupation of City Hall and the call to defund New York City Police Department. So, I didn't watch the State of the Union address, right? And that's no claimed ignorance; I just had a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's but claim, I did it's obviously
1: insanity, by the way. But go on. Yeah, okay. no,
2: <laughs> that's, that's at least what Twitter has told me is that I probably saved some uh some mental health on my own part by, by not watching it. One of the big kind of points of conversation coming out of it was this vocal re-articulation of something that Biden has been clear on since the I think since the DNC at least, um saying that, you know, the call is not to defund the police, but to refund the police as if the police were defunded in the first place. And I, I, I do I do I'm bringing it up mostly because I think it speaks to the way that I've seen, let me say, the way that I've seen people speak to it is, one, that it's been excused away by saying, well, actually, when you look at the polling, not a lot of Black folks support the idea of defunding the police, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm less interested in the polling aspect of it and more interested in the way in which Biden feels very comfortable um, making that consistent uh, political point, I think reflects some some weakness on the part of the black left in terms of our ability to, let's at the least say, like serve as a credible threat, right? To make this, that position, um, one that is going to come with some kind of political cost on his part. And I'm just curious in terms of um, kind of recognizing that as almost kind of a, a litmus test of kind of where the black left is, what do you look to as kind of power building strategies or approaches to kind of building the capacity, building the popularity, increasing the ability of folks on the black left to be able to, to ensure that there is a kind of, I don't want to say political cost, but there is a degree to which we can um, be in the position to um make things happen in the way that we would like to see them happen, rather than watching them happen right um what 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 kind of examples or what kind of approaches to to building some more power um do you see or do you you know kind of lean towards
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that I mentioned, like, one of the things that we're doing right now is using our district offices. Um, So the people who we've gotten elected um, into office who are Afro-Socialist, DSA members, using those district offices to then kind of, like... Challenge this idea of constituency services and reorient it towards an organizing project. So what do we talk about? Like I said, safety. We talk about child care. You know, we're having town halls. And so we're doing this hyper local work of going to folks and saying, like, let's, let's talk about, you know, these things. And how they're affecting you daily. But I also feel like I come from labor, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, like, we need to, like, definitely put the lab- the movement back into the labor movement. That's like what they say at Labor Notes. Um, it just means that we need to be in formation, right? We need active, vibrant, militant unions. Um, and we have to develop that muscle of critical thinking and militancy, uh, with those members so that we can eventually be in a place where workers are pushing for industry standards and solutions. Um, on a wider scale. And, and if we're gonna run, I guess under socialism, if we're gonna run our workplaces, we've gotta start practicing that now. And so I feel like that's a component. I do a ton of political education in unions and just trying to like shift how we feel about one another and what we believe to be true, right? Another thing is like I think that we I mentioned that we like were really in a space where we needed cultural workers, we needed healers and and social workers, and just and and also just people who you know could come with a different vibe, right, um, with an otherworldly vibe, because I feel like what we're fighting is really otherworldly in a lot of ways. And I think that means political and popular education that's widely available that explains concepts of power, white supremacy, anti-blackness, etc. Both in the labor movement and outside. But I actually don't feel like we'll ever overcome you know racism or racist attitudes. My hope is that we just get closer to getting rid of. The system that supports them and reinforces them. And the third thing I think is really important is like, and this might sound really weird, but like, not only do we need fully funded services, but we need to reimagine our care economy. Because I feel like once people feel taken care of, they'll feel more confident to stand up in their power, right? And, and also feel confident in the ideas that we're putting forward. And so, I I believe switching to a care economy, uh, also along culture, like we got to get rid of prosperity gospel. Like I grew up in the church, <laughs> like we got to move to something else, a liberation theology, something, I don't know. Mm. But, uh, you know, this prosperity gospel, I feel like is really like um, holding back, like a, like my parents segment of the, of the, you know, the black community or the, you know, people. Yeah. And I would just say too, like, this might sound corny, but I, I really do believe that we need artists to create and imagine like the world that we're saying that we want um like i appreciate shows like the shy and like bel-air for instance who are taking they're taking on these like um storylines our our concepts and imagining like what it would be like to defund the police what will the issues be you know what are the contradictions etc i mean i think many of us on the front lines think that we understand what it takes to win right but we haven't done that yet but what we really need and then and then because we haven't done that, we're talking to people about how this is the way and they're like, well, yeah, but what about all these other things? And so, I mean, I just find that art um, that appeals to a mass audience really presents ideas um, so that hopefully people can begin to imagine things themselves um, and add things to their vocabulary and, and just feel like more things are possible. And we could I, I really believe we do that through art and um, and culture in that way.
2: Just a couple quick follow-ups, not to put you on the spot, but like roughly speaking, when you're talking about at least the elected officials piece, uh, how many, like roughly how many elected officials have you all been involved in electing to like, let's say like local and state office in New York?
0: Yeah, so far, eight.
2: Right. And is it...
1: before um before, before can I clarify something? Yeah. Like, do, mm-hmm. do you all... And elected. So, i <laughs> um, to be precise here, my brother. It's right. my sister, sorry. Okay. okay. Um, yes. So, uh, um, the you all, is it to talk about DSA in particular? And it's folk, are you talking about DSA folk? Or are you talking about broader left folk? So, just to get me a clue who we're talking about. I hear eight. It's a good number. But these eight, eight DSA members? Okay. Okay.
2: And um, the, what, so I really, I really found that the idea of, the the approach that you talked about in terms of um, not simply the question of election, because I feel like people, when they talk about DSA and they talk about sort of the support that that you all have in terms of getting uh, DSA members elected, there's very little discussion of kind of like what comes after the ballot box. Like it's, it's like sort of people take the kind of the the kind of normal presumptions of bourgeois democracy and kind of just run with it when it comes to even talking about like what happens when those DSA folks get in office. And I think that service, constituent service piece is key. And not just the regular services, but transforming what those services could look like. And um, yeah, I think that's really an important piece of it. Is there a, um, if there was a way in which kind of building on something that Steve Steve talked about earlier in terms of like, If you had a magic wand and you were to say, okay, we're not only um, um, increasing the number of folks who are getting elected as DSA members, but there's something transformative happening in terms of that involvement with constituent services, do you have an idea in terms of what that would look like? Like what would be kind of the, the next level of development of that kind of involvement in electoral politics?
0: I'll say two things. Um, one of them is that the constituent services um, piece in each of the elected offices has really been trying to focus. Each of them, most of our our, our electeds got uh, elected on the issue of housing, and so what we've been able to do is like when we're going into these public into public housing or just in these communities in general is going from transitioning from the idea that we're there to solve their problems to an idea where we have a whole public housing development uh, protesting and making demands, you know, on their own. And so that's what it's really looked like, is us having those conversations with them, and then them transitioning, us bringing them to Albany, et cetera, and then they become leaders, and that's how, you know, our leaders are cycled. The other really, I think, important thing that they've NYCDSA has been doing, is talking about what happens after, you are elect, you know, they're elected, is that we have this project called Socialist in Office which is really a formation of the elected leadership of the organization um, along with the electeds themselves and their staff, Um, it's a regular meeting that they have where they talk strategy. They debate about how they're going to vote on certain, uh, bills that are coming up. Um, and they also release solutions. Like they just released a platform that covers a bunch of things. It's really messy because no, because you have these folks who are like now bound to each other in a sense, right? And sometimes you have people falter and waver and like this is, but this is supposed to be the place that we're holding them accountable to the ideas and the, the, of the membership, but also their concerns. More largely, um, and so it's interesting because they're they're not going into Albany as themselves. They're going to Albany with a socialist caucus um, and being expected to hold a line, which I think is different than in some other places.
2: And then that sounds, just just real quick. I, I want to I wanted to ask you real quick on the um, the labor piece. Are you are you more in terms of power building within the labor movement? Are you more along the lines of like how do we transform the unions that we have? And use that political education to kind of get the labor, put the movement back into the labor movement? Or are you sort of more focused or interested in expanding the labor movement, organizing new workplaces? There's been a lot of energy around Starbucks and Amazon and so on and so forth. Like, what's your, what's your, I guess, point of emphasis? It might just be all of the above, but I'm just curious in terms of how you see the, the way forward in terms of putting the movement back into the labor movement.
0: That's a good question. I mean, and I think that my views are like shifting, actually. So I I really appreciate this one. Um, You know, I used to be of the school of thought of like, we just need to expand and every worker, you know, should have a union and and that's how it should be. But in my own reflection of like participating in an election that was part of a hot shop um, and that actually like did very little good, um, for the workers, just to be quite frank. I, I oftentimes don't talk about it like that, but it's true. Um, people got laid off. We weren't able, uh, unable to defend ourselves because we had no contract language. Um, we had to, anyways, the point is, is that, yeah, I think that there are certain sectors and certain industry that we should be focused on because of their position, um, in society and because of the power and leverage that they have at their jobs. I don't know the, I don't know, um, that it's always the most strategic thing to spend a bunch of time organizing smaller shops that ultimately may not have any power to win.
1: Well, that's a fascinating, hmm, okay. My, my, my concern, Bianca, I get fully the idea of cost-benefit analysis of resources, I fully get that, okay, we put in different kind of terminology. And I fully get the idea that that oftentimes, in the best of circumstances, the power of a, a small hot shop may not be a lot, okay? Here's the butt part, okay? <laughs> um, it, it goes back to what you're saying in terms of dealing, how your neighbor dealt with the guy who was eventually killed by the police, right? That at some point, we need human-scale organizations, that allow folk to actually see each other, touch each other, and in some collective way transform their lives. And I think that that without that happening, people look for other vehicles for community, other ways to try to control their lives. And to the extent that we don't provide those venues, the right will. And 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 so I haven't got the answer, or the line, um, but I, I I worry about the kind of, um, and I know my saying cost-benefit is like a pejorative for so those who aren't into econ, right? But but, but the idea of a kind of cost-benefit analysis, I know it's coming from, but I think that misses some of the human scale stuff. And, and go a little bit further. When I was doing some traveling to, to Baltimore, as we were thinking about trying to form black Worker centers, I was talking to a guy up in Baltimore. He was, he was saying that when you had a, the, the more industrialized areas in, in, in Milwaukee. I said, I said Baltimore, I meant Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Um, the industrialized things in Milwaukee, you had a lot of small locals. And because of the small locals, you had black leadership. Who, and the arena of running a, a small local was the arena to gain skills and, and that were useful in other arenas. And I mean, think back to our discussion with Will Jones about three episodes ago on the March on Washington and the power of, of black labor to push that because they had those connections. And here in California, saw the impact of SAU's merging unions, like 10 to 1, 7 to 1, 5 to 1. And one thing it did in the quest for greater power, it took away those sense of the community and community building um, venues. So I wanted to put that out there. that I think... I've seen all these little Starbucks organizing campaigns going on now that's super cool. And so are y'all serious, what are you gonna you're gonna do? Sh- you gonna know, shut down Starbucks or offer, you know one little thing in Philadelphia?
2: Hey, it might be a key choke point. I'm just saying if <laughs> things come to a head, I just know some people they don't they don't operate right if they don't get their hit in the morning of that Starbucks coffee. they you know, I'm just saying I'm just so, so, so many I'm putting it out the, there
1: so many the could special be, Starbucks could be shop a, where the man is choke there, right?
2: Point. yes, it could I'm be with choke you. point in the. Uh, what is the um, yeah? Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. Not it's not a, it's not, not not a
2: distribution <laughs> center, right? It's not some fancy warehouse. It's not logistics, but you know, could
0: people can't get macchiatos, man? I want you, I
2: That's want you saying? know we're gonna have a,
1: a news mini series in Black Work Talk on the comedian circuit, circuit. We can crack jokes all day long, okay? Um, but seriously, and I, I, um, it's a concern I have that that that, that on one hand. The idea of people organizing is phenomenal. It's going to have some sort of impact beyond their, their winning and losing. And I get the fact that, they, that despite Tucson's view that of the choke points of Starbucks, right, that, that they may not change. They might change the relationships in the shop its cafe itself, but it won't radically alter, probably, issues of wages and, and those things. So so just want to put that out there, by the way. It's the idea that we need to balance those things.
0: I appreciate that, and I also just want to be clear that I also meant both, but but think that there should be priority given to other industry.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, This has been good. I really enjoyed this. Um, In terms of the the activity of the I'll call the socialist caucus in 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 New York State, what are folk doing to try to build either new forms of organizations in communities? or support existing ones. You know, so I think about kind of my take on Black survival and Jim Crow. It's my take. I wasn't you know, alive then, right? It, it is the question of um, the, the dense sense of social networks amongst Black folks that allow for to be sustained in the battle. And when I think about kind of from Chicago and machine politics, you had you know, dense precinct works with had precinct captains who brought people garbage cans, those things. You had the clubs in New York City. And so at some point in time, it seems to me that what, you had this kind of um, the building blocks for movement activism that need to be there. And so along with the idea, we got folk off. the folk kind of rolling through Albany as one, which is an important thing. Are people taking steps to build stuff locally, block by block? Or it could be new things or reinforce existing things that sustains Um, the the, the lifeblood of our activity?
0: I would say that I saw an explosion of organizations after the uprising in 2020 locally, just because people couldn't get along and everybody had you know, their idea that they wanted to do. And the answer is, we'll start an organization. And many of them did. I think that we've been trying to figure out how to do that on a local level. For instance, you know, I mentioned that, my precinct, they're responsible for two murders, unarmed black men, since 2021, the most recent being a couple months ago. And so there's now a task force that has come together that's kind of a spin off of our defund coalition around the city to say that, like, we want to particularly have conversations with people in this precinct because these are the folks that are really impacted. And what does that look like? That looks like people riding the subway and having conversations with unhoused individuals as well as people coming home from work. And I think it's an experiment. Another thing that we've really been experimenting with, the thing that we were able to transition to out of like all of this momentum of the uprising and the occupation, was this idea of eviction defense, that we need to use this energy to like physically uh, defend, you know, Black homeowners and, and folks from being evicted, period. Um, And you've seen that now in action, uh, even most recently with us uh, defending the first black homeowner on her block, and she was a victim of deed theft. And her landlord tried to violently uh, get into the house, and we had to physically put our bodies, and I sus- sustained hits. and And I think that's real, but that, that's like a local network of folks who are ready to do rapid response around issues of police brutality um, and evictions.
2: And this is this is a uh, uh, this is a case. that was just in the news a couple weeks ago. Queen um, Afua. Queen, Queen of Four. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly exactly yeah. okay is she still is she still in her ha- in her house or are you still
0: the judge just uh gave her possession of her home the deed um theft case is still pending she has a very aggressive landlord who I mean I I would say like one of the last times I did eviction defense last week I showed up and he had five people outside of the residence. Um, when I left, I had been punched in the face, trampled, saved, quote unquote, by a police officer <laughs> from being trampled. There was 40 people there. Um, trying to violently, they were on the roof, they were trying to get in the back, uh, through the back, they had a building, a couple, uh, this is brownstone, so a couple brownstones down, they were trying to get in the back, and it turned into a situation of the police being across the street, watching us defend the stoop, and watching them attack us, then when they attacked us, the police came and tried to move them, but because the makeup of our police were mostly black and brown, and these are white Jewish folks, they were like looking at them like, you don't, You can't tell me what to do. And so it became a situation where they just couldn't stop them from attacking us. And so they cleared everybody out. And then I said, I looked around and I said, are the police doing eviction defense now? (laughs) Like, what's going on? You know, but it was just this like really ugly uh, dynamic. So, yeah, that's unfolding. But like, thank God they did get um, possession granted back to them. But the the landlord is like, it's unreal. Like, he threw a table at me. And they were like jumping over people (laughs) to try to force themselves into this woman's home.
1: Wow. That's like real stuff. It's not like debating theories about changing Ukraine or it's a Republican or Democrat. That's important, though. I think what happens sometimes is we have our discussions too much up in the air and not on the ground. And I've always thought since I began to think about politics 50 years ago, that if you don't have a link theory in the real world, your theory is, 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 is weak and faulty and incomplete, so it's really... It's um scary hearing what you said, by the way, but it's also a good to know this happening at least, because that's why we get stronger in many, many ways. Question why did you why did you co-found the Afro Socialist People of Color Caucus in DSA? why did you do that?
0: Ultimately it came down to after Trump was elected, we immediately went from like having 50 to 100 people in meetings to, I think that one meeting after the election, we had 500 people in a meeting. And when it was 50 or 100, you know, the five to 10 black faces were like, but eh. <laughs> wasn't that bad, right? Could be better. But when it's 500, it was really overwhelming. And what I saw over and over again is that black and brown people would enter the space feel weird and uncomfortable being in such a massive uh, room of whiteness and then look at me and say, well, why the hell are you here? <laughs> um, to which I would say, like, you know, we've do- we're doing all this great work. You should stay. And then feeling like this is not the organization for me. Um, and so I realized quickly that we, you know, it started off as just having like a happy hour. Like, this is just a space that we want to hold for, you know, self-proclaimed radicalists and leftists and people who are socialist curious even, Right. Um, and then it kind of like, uh, transformed. It was, there was such a need for it. Um, particularly in this city, this is where it started. And so it kind of transformed into it being an official caucus. I was all, I was, it was not my idea to have it to be official caucus, by the way. I'm not even going to own that. Um, it was other people who want to write proposals that wanted to make it a caucus. I was always worried about, um, the line. Because DSA is a big tent organization. So what would that mean for a caucus, quote unquote, that's identity based and people are, you know, what would, what could we achieve? But, you know, ultimately I did it to create like some sort of space where people of color can come to both in the organization or people outside that were curious. So I call it like a buffer to the DSA. Cause like what we found is that, um, People will uh, originally enter the space of Afrosoc, then become comfortable with the politics of DSA, largely not saying they're comfortable in the fact that they agree with them, but comfortable with like what the arguments are and the debates are enough to enter the space themselves and build that way. And so, yeah.
2: Because it has a dual dynamic of being both DSA members and then open to people who aren't in DSA as well, too, right?
0: That was a huge thing. Yeah, we decided that um, in our second convening in New Orleans in 2019 that we wanted not only DSA to pay for our convening, since they had endorsed Bernie. (laughs) That That was our exchange. Like, you all endorse Bernie. He doesn't endorse reparations. This is a problem. They said, we'll pay for your convening. And we said, fine. And it's going to be open to non-members. And that's been kind of like a sticking point, I think, um, in the organization, even to present day. And I feel like there's a lot of questions around that. But the reason we wanted to do it is because we, like I said, just saw a need for people wanting to come together and make connections. And I think that it's really uh, led to some really beautiful building and organizing um, around the country.
1: So one quick question and one one locker question. You mentioned the kind of the, the influx of people after the Trump election and and um people five people showed up. What were the demographics of the increase? Was it like all white folks or a good mixture of white and non-white? What just give me a sense of that?
0: All white folks. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. and, and and like we're like it's embarrassing a little bit. I'm not even gonna lie, I'm a little embarrassed. They did a a, a poll. I think DSA is like 77% male and even higher percent white it's a mess you know and new york city is what? not is not different so
2: though that that is dependent on who responded it's it's it was True. self-selected so we we can only see it as being so scientific and what have you listen but why, are you to but why are you embarrassed though embarrass
0: I'm embarrassed because I'm like, I mean, just to be honest with you, when I saw the survey, I was like, yo, am I caping for white folks here? Like, for a second, I had to think, like, who who, who am I with, you know, because I feel like I'm so, yeah. But anyways, uh, I, I would say the victory that I took off of that report is that uh, since 2017, black membership has increased from 2% to 4%. <laughs> and i like to, Afro suck to own that 2% increase.
2: There you go.
0: <laughs> Got to well, find you, the silver linings.
1: You said that um, you doing a lot of great work. What's some of the great work have you done as a caucus?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I feel like, you know, in the uprising, I was really impressed with how, you know, people across the country, We like in the beginning of the pandemic, we kind of shifted to like a political education because we were like, that's all we can do is study together. Shout outs to Bill Fletcher Jr. and Jose Laluz for having the patience to guide us through Black Reconstruction in those in those early months of the pandemic because we felt like it was something relevant. And what I actually was able to transition, one of the exciting things about AfroSoc is that it's in place. That you normally wouldn't think about black uh left being. So, like able to shut down interstates, you know, for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in Dallas is huge. Having, you know, being able to hold actions and direct actions with you un- alongside labor in St. Louis around um black the movement for black lives and as well as the occupation here. I would say simultaneous to that type of kind of uprising where every we all were out there, something else happened, which was really interesting, which was like we started getting, I started getting reached out to from HBCU students um, from across the country who were telling me that they were forming Afro-Socialist chapters, YDSA chapters on their campuses. So we were able to do and lead study with them. We did an introduction um, to socialism through, through, through the Black perspective with them. This group of students over the summer, it was small and it was scrappy. But what that actually transitioned to, which is really exciting, is like the Blackburn Student Center takeover. Those are our Afro-socialist folks at the forefront of that fight at Howard, at, at right? At Howard, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then from there, they inspired their other comrades in their reading group to then take up and uh, come together in a collective from Morehouse, Spellman, Clark Atlanta, and Morris Brown, and they also were able to lead a protest and occupation of their own to demand better campus conditions. And so, like this, this, this this movement that happened is, is kind of like not of our doing, right? But it just happened that like the timing was perfect and they were kind of like ready to rise up, which I think is really exciting. We have these new formations on the campus and I think they're really critical because, you know, one of the statistics that was said to me, and I don't know how true it is, but was said to me in the very beginning when they reached out to me um, was that the fastest growing organization on HBCU campuses in the last uh, several few years, has been Turning Point USA. I think that's really scary. I think that means that a large number of young Black people are rejecting what they're seeing, right, and grasping for something different, and we want them to try socialism.
2: And and just to be clear, so people know, what is Turning Point USA? Because some people might not be familiar with it.
0: Turning Point USA is, I mean... I feel like they're just a, a radical, like right wing organization. Uh, yeah. Period.
2: And and they do they do do a lot of outreach on campus, right? They do actually try to try to make inroads and they table at college campuses and things like that. But it's sort of like the um, front, not front organization, but it is a a kind of college based organization of the Republican Party, essentially.
0: Yeah. Scared.
2: Yeah. Broader conservative movement. Yeah.
1: One thing I wanted to really need to begin to kind of wind down the show, this has been phenomenal by the Bianca, so I'm so glad you redid this. Um, but one thing I, th- I think about a lot in terms of um, different strands of black radicalism is to how do you get people to engage the question of a political economy? I, I raise it not as a, as, a, as a big segue, but I think also a lot of folk on campuses, any place want to know what's a better world. And to me, the foundation of a better world is a political economy that works for us. And I kind of joke and talk about how sometimes people talk about what your dream world is. I want to be on the beach, some place, a colada, chill. And I'm saying, wait a second, who made the Pian- colada? The hotel you in? who run the hotel? And so I think that when we talk about either the abolition or talk about Afrofuturism any of the strands, it's important if it's a question with those folk, what's the nature of the political economy? Because if we dream of future, Without talking about work, we're on dream about a real future. And, and, and that, um, luck of, that lack of being rooted in the real world will either reduce our power or allow folk to be taken into rightward directions. And so I just think, hopefully, as you advance your work and doing great work, I say you're bothering Bushy black folks around the country, you know, um, that, Do, that doing that God's work, doing God's work. <laughs> Okay, Jesus was anti-Bougie. That's fine. Okay. I'm sorry. Y'all. Okay. Um but um, no,
0: I understand what you're saying, and that's why it's so important that we're like introducing like concepts of like labor organizing into these spaces as well. One of my huge frustrations have been me being active in black spaces here, uh quote unquote left spaces here in New York, not afro-socialist and me mentioning unions mm-hmm. as a potential ally and people saying to me oh you mean those white guys with hard hats or <laughs> you know just seeing themselves as something totally separate from a labor and, and 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 even outright saying like i don't like unions like my grandmother was in a union they didn't treat her right and so like i i feel like that's something that is definitely a strand that we're trying to like address um and i and i'm trying to address it uh with my work so
1: So winding things down, you said this, you've answered this question in different ways, but I wanted you to pull pull it all together. What's your vision of Black freedom?
0: My grandfather used to say, we can never be free until niggas ain't scared to die. And I really agree with that as I've gotten older. But, you know, like my vision of Black freedom is just like a place that we are not even having to ask because the sense that we would have to ask for our freedom in the way that we are now or make demands upon the system or uh, upon these people it's just like it's already it's already out of whack and so like I want to be in a world where I'm allowed to dream and create I don't have to work to survive and that people can just be I think Michelle Krenzel on this show said people have black people should have the right to be mediocre I 100% agree with that
1: (laughs) music What, what music drives you
0: um Right now I'm listening to Landrell. Um, I would say gratitude is like something that I, I just try to keep in the rotation. I'm also really um, enjoying the new Robert Glasper Black Radio too. One
1: well, good thing about having people younger than me on these shows. I hear these people. Who's gratitude? Who All these folks. I'm learning new people to, to check. I do know Robert Glasper though. Uh, I, I did pick a, um, Black Radio of 3. What books are you reading?
0: Right now. I'm reading The Color of Law, mostly for just like research purposes. I also, Cecily Meyer-Cruz and Greg Namaker just came out with a really good article in Labor Notes, um, putting out a call to the labor movement to put in their contract expiration dates into a tool so that we can start to be uh, in formation with one another. And I thought that was a really powerful statement that they made. And hopefully people do take on that, um, heed that call.
1: Sounds cool. Oh, this has been wonderful, Bianca. It's been wonderful, okay? So thanks for doing this, okay? Thanks for coming on.
0: Much appreciated.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: That was good. Our opening wrap on Ukraine highlighted an important reality facing black folks in this country and around the world. The virus of racism infects all aspects of global life And even though the Ukraine people are valiantly fighting Russian expansionism, they are fighting with baggage. Part of that baggage is the racism that exists in Ukraine society. Thus, as is always the case, Black folks must fight for justice and democracy wherever that fight occurs, and we must be vigilant against the racism that exists among pro-democracy forces. Beyond that, Bianca reminded me of the importance of work in clarifying differences and forging solidarity amongst progressives and building power amongst working people to fight for a better society. Questions of how to develop safe communities were answered as people began to develop these safe communities. Questions about how to build a unified left were answered as the left began to do real work in the community. Questions of how to dig deeper roots amongst working people were answered as the left fought evictions and socialist legislatures and Albany began to deliver constituent services in new ways. An old friend of mine once said that work clarifies. He is so correct, as engaging in the struggle helps to clarify conceptual issues and separates those folk who want to talk about the struggle from those po- people who want to be in the struggle. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Our co-sponsor, Organizing Upgrade, is now Convergence still an online space created to strengthen social movements. But the new name is accompanied by new energies and new ways to lift up stories and engage in strategic debates. Please check our Convergence website at convergencemag.com or its Facebook page. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of a network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. We had a successful fundraising drive but we still need your support. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com And I promise to get back to you the next time stay safe and be well.